Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode four of Mongols and Mamluks called The Defeat of the Seventh Crusade. In the last episode, we heard how the French king Louis IX, or Saint Louis as he's often called since 27 years after his death, he was made into a saint, organised the Seventh Crusade to attack Egypt, which was long seen by the Crusaders as the key to controlling the Middle East. The Seventh Crusade is conspicuous because it really was the last major military effort by Western Europe to recover Jerusalem. As you heard last time, it was brilliantly successful to begin with, since it captured the important Egyptian fortified town of Damietta, which controlled the access to the Nile. But the decision to advance on Cairo turned into a disaster when the Crusader advance guard firstly defeated the Egyptian army, but then pursued it into the town of Mansura on the road to Cairo. There, the Egyptians rallied under the leadership of a brilliant general called Baibars, who would in later years become the ruler of the powerful Mamluk Empire. In a fierce battle in the narrow streets of Mansura, the proud French knights were cut to pieces by the Egyptians because they couldn't dismount from their horses and they were attacked on all sides. The crusaders were forced back and set up a fortified camp outside Mansura, but they'd suffered very heavy casualties, which they couldn't replace. And meanwhile, the Egyptian army was getting stronger and stronger every day. So we rejoin the narrative as King Louis is facing the growing Egyptian army and hoping that the death of the Egyptian Sultan Ayub, who had died from tuberculosis, might provoke some sort of civil war in Egypt over his succession, which would give the Crusaders a chance to regain the initiative. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. For eight weeks, King Louis waited in the Crusaders' fortified camp outside the town of Mansura, but the hoped-for Egyptian revolution never occurred. Instead, on the 28th of February 1250, Turan Shah, son of the late Sultan Ayub, arrived at the Egyptian camp. As soon as he heard from his stepmother of his father's death, he had left his capital in Syria and rode swiftly south. He spent three weeks at Damascus, where he was proclaimed Sultan, and reached Cairo towards the end of February. His arrival at Mansura was the signal for new activity by by the Egyptians. He caused a squadron of light boats to be made, which were transported on camelback to the lower reaches of the Nile. There they were launched and began to intercept the vessels that brought food to the Crusader camp from Damietta. More than 80 Frankish ships were captured one after the other, and on the 16th of March a convoy of 32 ships was lost at one swoop. The Crusaders were quickly threatened by 
by famine. Famine was followed by disease, dysentery and typhoid. At the beginning of April, King Louis understood that he must extricate the army as best he could from the camp and retreat to Damietta. Now, at last, he brought himself to open negotiations with the Muslims and sent to offer Turan Shah the exchange of Damietta for Jerusalem. But it was too late. The Egyptians knew now how precarious was the crusader's position. When his offer was rejected, Louis called his officers together to discuss the retreat. They begged him to slip ahead himself with his bodyguard to Damietta, but he proudly refused to leave his men. It was decided that the sick should be sent by boat down the Nile, and the able-bodied should march along the road by which they had come. The camp was struck on the morning of the 5th of April 1250 and the painful journey began with the king in the rearguard to encourage the stragglers. The Mamluks in Mansura saw the movement and set out in pursuit. They found that the crusaders were all across the Baras Segir but the engineers had forgotten to destroy the pontoon. Therefore they hurried across and soon were harassing the crusaders from all sides. Throughout that day their attacks were beaten off as the crusaders moved slowly on. The king's own gallantry was beyond all praise, but that night he fell ill, and the next morning he could scarcely keep himself on his horse. As the day dragged on, the Muslims closed in around the army and attacked in full force. The sick and weary soldiers scarcely tried to resist them. It was clear that the the end had come. Geoffrey of Sergine, who commanded the royal bodyguard, took the king into a cottage in the village of Munyat al-Kols, just north of Sharim Shah in the centre of the fighting. The French knights could not bear to admit defeat, but the barons of Outremer took control and sent Philip of Montfort to negotiate with the enemy. Philip had almost succeeded in persuading the Egyptian generals to allow the free departure of the army in return for the surrender of Damietta, when suddenly a sergeant called Marcel bribed, it was thought by the Egyptians, rode through the Christian ranks, telling the commanders in the king's name to surrender without conditions. They obeyed this order, of which Louis himself knew nothing, and they laid down their arms, and the whole army was rounded up and led into captivity. About the same hour, the ships conveying the sick to Damietta were surrounded and captured. The Egyptians were at first embarrassed by the numbers of their prisoners, finding it impossible to guard them all. Those that were too feeble to march were executed at once, and on every evening for a week, 300 were taken out and beheaded by the Sultan's own orders. King Louis was moved from his sickbed and lodged in chains in a private house in Mansura. The leading barons were kept together in a larger prison. Their captors would constantly threaten them with death, but had in fact no intention of slaying anyone who might bring in a good ransom. Joinville, who was on board one of the captured ships, saved his own and his comrades' lives by letting it be understood that he was the king's cousin, and when the Egyptian admiral questioned him about it and learned that it was untrue, but that in fact he was a cousin of the German emperor Frederick, his reputation was greatly enhanced. Indeed, the prestige of the German 
German emperor did much to ease the situation of the crusaders when Louis in his prison was ordered by the sultan to cede not only Damietta but all the Frankish lands in Syria he replied that they belonged not to him but to King Conrad the German emperor's son and only the German emperor could give them away the Muslims at once dropped the suggestion but the terms that they expected from the king were harsh enough he was to ransom himself by the cession of Damietta and his army by the payment of half a million pounds that is to say a million Byzants it was a vast sum but the prisoners to be released were very numerous as soon as the terms were agreed the king and the chief barons were taken on board galleys which sailed down the river to Fariscour where the Egyptian sultan took up his residence it was arranged that they should go on to Damietta and that the city should be handed over two days later on the 30th of April. It was only through the fortitude of Queen Margaret that the bargain could be made at all. When the king left her to march on Mansura, she had been about to give birth to a child, and the child was born with an octogenarian knight as midwife three days after the news of the surrender of the army. She called her little son John Tristan the child of sorrow. That same day she heard that the Pisans and Genoese were planning to evacuate Damietta as there was insufficient food to feed the inhabitants. She knew that she could not hold Damietta without the aid of the Italians and she summoned their leaders to her bedside to plead with them for if Damietta were abandoned there would be nothing to offer in return for the release of the king. When she proposed herself buying up all the food in the city and seeing to its distribution they agreed to stay. The purchase cost her more than £360,000, but it saved the morale of the city. As soon as she was well enough to travel, her staff insisted on moving her by sea to Acre, while the patriarch Robert went with a safe conduct to the Sultan to Fariscour to complete the arrangements for the ransom. He arrived there to find the Sultan dead. There had been some delay over the final negotiations and on Monday the 2nd of May, Turin Shah and his captives were still at Faroskur. That day he gave a banquet to his emirs, but he had lost the support of the Mamluks. As Turin Shah rose to leave his banquet on the 2nd of May, soldiers of the Barid regiment of Mamluks with Baibars at their head burst in and began, Baibars first of all, to slash at the Sultan with their swords. He fled wounded to a wooden tower beside the river. When the soldiers followed and set it alight, he leapt into the Nile, and there, standing in the water, he begged for mercy, offering to abdicate and go back to the Jazeera. No one answered his appeal. After a volley of arrows had failed to kill him, Baibars leapt down the bank and finished him off with his own sabre. For three days the mutilated body lay unburied. Eventually the ambassador of the Caliph of Baghdad obtained leave to commit it to a simple tomb. The triumphant conspirators appointed the senior Mamluk commander Izadine Ibek as general and regent. In this way the Mamluks seized control of Egypt and indeed some Mamluks appeared before King Louis with blood still on their swords claiming money from him for having slain his enemy. 
Others, with a grim sense of fun, brandished their swords in the faces of the captive barons, but the Mamluks had no intention of killing them and thereby foregoing the huge ransom money. They confirmed the previous terms. When Damietta was surrendered, the king and the nobles would be released, but the ordinary soldiers, some of whom had been taken to Cairo, would have to await the payment of the money, which was reduced to £400,000, half to be paid at Damietta and half half when the king arrived at Acre. When the king was asked to swear that if he failed in his bargain, he would renounce Christ, he firmly refused. Throughout his captivity, his dignity and integrity deeply impressed his captors, some of whom jestingly proposed that he should be their next sultan. On Friday the 6th of May, 1250, Geoffrey of Sargine went to Damietta and handed the fortress over to the Muslim vanguard. The king, and the nobles were brought there that afternoon and Louis set about finding money for the first instalment of the ransom but the money in his own coffers came only to £170,000 until the remainder was found the Egyptians held back the king's brother Alfonso of Poitou the Templars were known to have large stocks of money in their chief galley but it was only when they were threatened with violence that they agreed to disgorge what was required when the whole sum was handed over over to the Egyptians, the Count of Poitou was set free. That evening, the king and the barons set sail for Acre, where they arrived six days later after a stormy voyage. Neither clothes nor bedding had been made ready for the king on his ship. He was obliged to wear the robes and sleep on the same mattress that he had used in the Arab prison. Many wounded soldiers had been left behind at Damietta. Contrary to their promise, the Mamluks massacred them all. Soon after his arrival at Acre, Louis took counsel of his vassals about his future plans. His mother had written to him from France to urge his speedy return. King Henry of England was said to be on the warpath, and there were many other urgent problems. But he felt that he himself was needed in Outremer. The disaster of the Egyptian campaign had not only destroyed a French army, but it had robbed Outremer of almost all of its troops. Moreover, it was his duty to remain at hand until the last of the prisoners in Egypt was released. The king's brothers and the Count of Flanders advised him to return to France, but in fact his mind was made up. On the 3rd of July he publicly announced his decision. His brothers and any who wished should go home, but he would stay, and would take into his personal service all those such as Joinville who were willing to stay with him. A letter was sent to the barons of France explaining his decision and begging for reinforcements for the crusade. He had felt bitterly the failure of this great effort. It was all very well for him to declare that the catastrophe was a sign of God's grace sent to teach him humility, but he must have reflected that he had paid for the privilege of that lesson with the loss of many thousands of innocent lives. The king's brothers, together with the leading nobles of the crusade, sailed from Acre about the middle of July. They left behind all the money that they could spare, but only about 1,400 men. The Queen remained with the King. He was at once accepted as de facto ruler of the kingdom. The throne still belonged legitimately to Conrad of Germany, but it was obvious that Conrad would never now come to the east. On Alice's death, the regency passed to her son, King Henry of Cyprus, who had nominated his cousin, John of Arsouf, as warden. He gladly handed over the government to Louis.
The departure of his French vassals permitted Louis to listen more readily to advice. His experience had broadened his mind and his lack of armed forces taught him the need for diplomatic relations with the Muslims. Some of his friends found him too ready to follow a conciliatory policy, but he was wise to do so and the moment was favourable for diplomacy. The Mamluk revolution in Egypt had not been well received in Muslim Syria, whose loyalty to the Ayyubites persisted. When the news came of Turin Shah's death, An-Nasir Yusuf of Aleppo marched down from Homs and on the 9th of July 1250 occupied Damascus, where he was enthusiastically welcomed as the great-grandson of Saladin. Once more, there was bitter rivalry between Cairo and Damascus, and both courts were eager to buy crusader aid. Hardly had Louis arrived at Acre before an embassy came there from An-Nasir Yusuf, but Louis would not commit himself. The Damascene alliance might be strategically preferable, but he had to think of the crusader prisoners still in Egypt. In the winter of 1250, the army of Damascus began an invasion of Egypt. On the 2nd of February 1251, it met the Egyptian army under Ibek at Abassa in the Delta, 12 miles east of the modern Zagazig. The Syrians were at first successful, though Ibek's own regiment held firm, but a regiment of Mamluks in An-Nasir Yusuf's army deserted his cause in the midst of the battle. The sultan, whose courage was not remarkable, thereupon turned and fled. The Mameluk power in Egypt was saved, but the Ayyubites still held Palestine and Syria. When Anasir Yusuf next sent to Acre, hinting that he might cede Jerusalem in return for crusader help, Louis sent an embassy to Cairo to warn Ibek that unless the question of the crusader prisoners was soon settled, he would ally himself with Damascus. His ambassador, John of Valenciennes, succeeded in the course of two visits in securing first the release of the knights, including the Grand Master of the Hospital, taken in 1244 at Gaza, and then some 3,000 of the more recent captives in return for 300 Muslim captives in Crusader hands. Ibeck showed his growing anxiety to make friends with the king by sending him, with the second batch, the gift of an elephant and a zebra. Louis was then emboldened to demand the release of all the prisoners remaining in Mamluk hands without any further payment. When Ibeck realised that an envoy from Louis, the Arabic-speaking Yves de Breton, was visiting the court of Damascus, he consented to the king's request in return for a military alliance against his enemy and Nasir Yusuf. He further promised that when the Mamluks had occupied Palestine and Damascus, they would return the whole of the old kingdom of Jerusalem as far east as the Jordan to the Crusaders. Louis agreed and the prisoners were all released at the end of March 1252. But the Franco-Mamluk alliance came to nothing as soon as he heard of it, and Nasir Yusuf sent troops to Gaza to intercept a junction between the Allies. Louis moved down to Jaffa, but the Mamluks failed to advance out of Egypt to help him. For about a year, the Syrians and the Crusaders remained stationary, neither wishing to provoke a battle. Meanwhile, Louis repaired the fortifications of Jaffa. He had already strengthened those of Acre, Haifa and Caesarea, 
But Louis was running out of time. The King of England began to make trouble in spite of an oath to go on the crusade, nor would he support his bishops whom the Pope had charged to preach the crusade. Civil war broke out over the inheritance of the County of Flanders and all the great vassals of France were growing restive. Louis's first duty was to his own kingdom. Reluctantly, he prepared to go home. He set sail from Acre on the 24th of April, 1254. His boat was was nearly wrecked off the coast of Cyprus, but the Queen promised a silver ship to the shrine of St Nicholas at Varangéville, and the storm abated. A few days later, the Queen's presence of mind saved the boat from destruction by fire. In July, the royal party landed at Hier, in the territory of the King's brother, Charles of Anjou. St Louis' crusade had involved the Christian East in a terrible military catastrophe, and though his four years' stay at Acre did much to repair the damage, the loss of man power could never quite be recovered. He had the noblest character of all the great crusaders, but it might have been better for Outremer had he never left France. He gained heaven, but not Jerusalem. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the arrival of the Mongols in the Middle East changed everything for both the Muslim and Crusader states. (laughs) 